Broadcasting from Fairfax, Virginia, you are now tuned in to the Highlight Cast with your hosts, Adam McNair and Kevin Long. Welcome to the next episode of the Highlight Cast. It's Adam McNair. I'm joined by Kevin. Hey guys. How's it going, y'all? So, uh, appreciate you tuning in again. Uh, we are going to continue on our miniature little series here of... Upsizing your business. Yeah, scaling a business <laughs> and trying to make sure that as you grow, things don't break. You Ideally, what you want to see is that the experience of somebody working with you, whether it's as an employee or as a customer, is consistent. And that you can maintain your successful culture as you grow. Yeah, and I think, I think we've all seen that. I think we've all seen you know the small neighborhood business where you said, oh, that's a really great place. And whether it be a restaurant or a service provider or any number of things, yep. all of a sudden when they get very, very popular... Out the window. Yeah, and I think if anybody's ever gone to the beach in the summertime and you see a restaurant where just because of their location and the situation, they are doing so much business that they cannot even help to to think about quality and they bring you the wrong food and it's not cooked correctly and it took them two and a half hours and they kind of don't even have time to apologize and you, you don't even almost feel bad about it because you just look at it and you're like, you peop- there's no way that you can accommodate the number of people that are in this establishment yeah. and there are a hundred people waiting for tables and you know that sometime at the end of the day whoever gets the cash register from that business will be glad they did all that business but you're sure that in the moment where everybody is completely just in the weeds weeds, that that they probably wish they were doing something else yeah so before we get into that i was going to share a a really good use uh for the for the highlight cast so about two consecutive weekends now i've i've driven someplace with my kids in the car and once they knew that we were doing a podcast for the business they were curious and they said we'd like to listen to that because the only other podcast we really listen to is car talk which don't ask me why (laughs) car talk's amazing yeah but you know you would think it at four and seven they probably would not be all that interested in distributor cap conversations but they seem to like it yeah so they said so if you're doing a podcast we would like to listen to it and i put the first episode on and they were completely silent for a good solid five or ten minutes and i thought man we're magic really right we are just something else clearly totally engrossing just captivating and i turned around and looked and they were both completely stone asleep. Just <laughs> totally asleep. <clears throat> and I thought maybe they were tired, right? Clearly it wasn't connected to the fact that we were it talking about... It possibly be us. No, no, certainly not us, nor the fact that we were talking about government-wide contracts. So, the Fascinating same, stuff, yo. Right? That's what I Exactly. And so the following weekend, I was driving them again... Uh, we were actually going to the beach that weekend, and we were driving, and they said, can we listen to that show where you and Kevin talk again? Amazing. I said, absolutely we can. So I fired up episode two. I figured, hey, this way they can learn about security clearances. I mean, you never know. It's never too, never, you're never, never too young. It is never too early to keep your credit clean. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Starting on your SF-86, I mean, I start on that early, right? right? And if you think about it, my son's only ever really lived 
in two houses. So now is a good if time for him to fill it out. If he starts filling it out, he can just keep it with him. My daughter's never, she's only lived in one house. It's Super even easy. easier for her, right? She's probably a great PHP programmer, too. Let's bring her on. Probably, too. <laughs> True. So <coughs> I put episode two on, and and this was in the middle of the day. So this I can't blame on fatigue, fatigue or anything or darkness. They were both completely sound asleep in a matter of minutes. You're welcome. Yeah. So, <laughs> so number one... Great way if you need to take a car trip with your kids. I find letting the highlight cast put them to sleep for you so that you can... The dulcet tones of Adam and Kevin. Yeah, so that was... Uh, so th- That seems to be great. And honestly, that may become the uh, you know the listenership of the podcast. It really... It'll be like, you know, on iTunes, there's this small subset of the government <laughs> community that listens to it, but then it's just on the top of the charts for the... For, for the, the mommy ki- blogs. Yeah, the kids section it's so amazing. people can get their kids to go to sleep. But it's Rocknoceros and us. <laughs> I guess we'll just take that as uh, a compliment that we're we're taking the stress out of government contracting that they feel <laughs> like so that. safe from the comfort factor. Highlights on the job, we can go to sleep. That's right. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of, so a couple of things to uh, to talk about about scaling a business. One of them that is. It's really topical for us here because we're in the process of securing new office space. Yep. But it's something that is is a, a big challenge for any business because you go from this point where you have staff that can telework, but you don't really have the personal interaction. You lack some of the collaboration ability to sit in a room and do things together. And it also sometimes doesn't either it either doesn't feel like you're part of the overall company yep. if you're all remote, or it doesn't quite feel like you're a real company yet if you don't have an office. Then you have this constant ebb and flow of I need offices for ten people, twelve people, fourteen people. Real estate, traditional real estate, is not really set up that way. No. How long do you want to sign a lease for? Right? And I mean, they generally it's... want five, ten years. So a couple of things that, that I wanted to bring up is that, number one, until you absolutely need something different, co-working is phenomenal. If you haven't ever looked at one of these co-working spaces, and there's a lot of different branded ones. There's, yeah. there's WeWork, and there's Regis, and there's... Office key and there's there are a lot of different ones and they all have their kind of their niche their take on it. Some of them are trying to be more fun. Yep. Some of them are trying to look more techy. Some of them are trying to be more kid babysitting or fitness center friendly. They are so flexible and so good. They're great. <clears throat> and now for your headquarters. It may not work great for that because you want to maybe have your identity a little bit more honed in. But a lot of them, you can actually block off a big part of that facility and put your logo on the door and everything. They're just handling the elasticity of your space requirements and all of the ancillary stuff that you really probably don't want to do anyway. I mean... Yeah, uh, it's the place we're working in in St. Louis. 
it's a great space uh very techy for incubators it's it's pay pay as you go seat by seat but if you want more space they'll get you more space you you literally can get a door put slap your your logo on it and they'll handle reception they'll handle mail they'll handle security they'll handle real estate taxes that and and you just space as a service it's amazing yeah and that you know comparing it to the traditional way of getting space so we've got a project just as an example that has been in different phases of everybody on site then the government didn't quite have space for our folks so then we were teleworking some then back on site now we're going to be almost exclusively off site if we were to just go out and go to a, to a building and say look we we want a space that is doesn't have to be super fancy but just good enough for for this project how many people is it well it's a good question it, it kind of goes up and down a little bit over time it's been as low as maybe eight people it's probably been as many as 20. what they hear is you need space for 20 people yep so you have to sign a lease for the maximum you would need because otherwise you're not you're not guaranteed to be able to expand right and and if there's no contiguous space available you're kind of stuck so they say okay well we'll get it for 20 people um fancy build out or not so fancy build out and you say well it doesn't need to be so fancy like i don't need laser lights and whatever else just whatever kind of a standard and they say okay well that's going to end up being about 50 60 70 dollars a square foot to build it out but don't worry we'll pay for that for you, you go, oh well that's great so for that build out we're just going to need we would do that if you sign a seven and a half year lease you go whoa my contract's only got another three years left on it. I mean, I hopefully will be here for longer than that, and the recompete will happen, and the, the program will continue, and it will be funded and everything else, but I don't want to sign it for that long. They go, oh, well, if you're only willing to take it for, uh, for three years, then your options would be don't really do any build-out. You know, well, but there's, <laughs> there's no offices. They're like, well, but you could probably get cubicle furniture. Well, yeah, but that's going to be really expensive. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, I guess. Or they say, well, we would we would pay for it, but we're going to need you to uh, to pay a 30% premium per square foot. Because really, at the end of the day, what they're trying to recoup is their money. Yeah. And so if you want to sign a one-year lease or a 10-year lease, they want to recoup their build-out cost regardless of what that is. So that really, I think, only works well your headquarters. I mean, your headquarters office, there's a certain amount of, of, of staff that you are pretty sure that you're going to need but number one it would be nice to find some space where there is some flexibility to evolve and grow but not have to take the maximum that you think you might need and i think that goes a lot into your into your real estate search but then also what's the right level of build out where you're not wetting yourself to a space 10 years is a long time and we, the company's been around for 10 years. I mean, <clears throat> when Rebecca started Highlight, you think she imagined a space like this or or where, what we're going to need through the next year? It's, it's impossible to predict. Right, and the challenge that we're facing right now is so we are 100% full. Um, as of next week with the other couple of folks that are going to be starting here at headquarters, we have a name attached to every desk and we have as many desks and offices as what will fit. will fit so we're in the process of taking additional space 
But when you go look at the build-outs, so many of these buildings, they're not really in the business, nor are they interested in supporting your business model. So figuring out your business model when you decide you're going to go negotiate a lease, somebody that will give you 8,000 square feet of office space now, but will guarantee you maybe two to 3,000 more in that building or on that floor when you're ready for it, those kinds of things are really important or that you're going to take a core amount of space next to a co-working facility so that right. you can be there and that you know you have some elasticity next door you know back to the, the co-working piece they really provide all of those things that in addition to sunk cost that you end up signing on to for years and years and years a lot of times requires a person to manage yep. things like the internet connection into the facility, that takes effort. Yep. The stocking of refreshments, the coffee machine, all of those kinds of services. If there are plants, somebody has to take care of them. These co-working spaces are usually nicer than any office you've ever been in, and they have cafeterias, snack machines, video games, beer on tap. Yeah. espresso machines free coffee yeah everything that is is handled for you down to the level of things like they offer printing sometimes yeah. it's a per page cost or sometimes it's uh, included in your monthly a certain amount of pages are included in your monthly subscription but a lot of times you don't print that much no I mean not anymore we don't print very much we we've added uh, we replaced our printer a while ago but we don't print proposals out anymore, really. Hardly They're all ever. electronic submission. Yeah, it's uh, the fact that it's a an MFP. I mean, we use it to scan things that we have to have wet ink on more right. often than anything. Yeah, because we really all of our all of our personnel files and everything else have all been digitized long ago. So we we really don't keep paper, nor do we create a lot of paper. So going to one of those co-working kinds of facilities, they handle all of those things as services down to the level of providing a receptionist so if somebody comes to meet with you there's somebody to greet them and direct them into the right into the right you know area it's generally a monthly commitment you know it's the kind of thing where you can say hey i've got nine people this month i need nine desks and then you need 12 next month and they just sell you three more and when you don't need them you can you can return them yep and they tend to come with conference room space so you're not spending money on a per square foot basis on rooms that you're not using all the time either. Yeah, and the, the the big expense of those kinds of facilities, giant conference room, giant training room, if you're going to use that for an hour or two a month, paying for the hour or two a month as opposed to leasing a thousand square feet that is your training environment that, I mean, is, is effectively costing you at least twenty to thirty thousand dollars a year, it, it is significantly better to go to go that route. So I'm a big advocate of the um, of the co-working solutions. Yep. Uh, I'm also an advocate of being very, very protective of how much you fall in love with the build out and how long <laughs> an agreement that you you decide to um, to sign. Have there been offices you've worked in before that were 
essentially they felt like afterthought offices, offices that were almost empty, offices that people probably wish they didn't have if they could have gotten out of the lease. Sure. I mean, as often as not, it's been government site, and so they don't get a whole lot of, of, uh, of choice in that. Uh, but the the startup when I, we first started, I first started working out in Arlington on Kent Street. You know, it was I was like employee number what twenty or something like that, and you know, they they had that office because they could afford it and it was the space and it was close enough to where the customers were, were going to come and see them and you know I, I sat at a desk that wobbled for a year <laughs> yeah the the spaces that you lock yourself into I mean it's it, I think lots of businesses can change a lot especially ours can really ebb and flow and change almost overnight because you know one of the things that we hear people talk about is you know what well, what do you think is the percentage that you're going to win that job or not at the end of the day it's binary yep. you either are going to win or you're not so you don't kind of need an office in Atlanta you either you do, do or you don't or you don't and so you end up with an award document coming in and now all of a sudden your company has fundamentally shifted the center of gravity someplace and whether it's having a remote office not having a remote office having a co-working space if you have a remote office that was to support a project they usually feel like uncared for un unattended offices yep you walk in and there's almost cobwebs across everything and and you don't you don't want to go to the effort because it really doesn't make a lot of sense right. Con- to really curate and take care of that office because people don't use it very yeah, much. Yeah, it's a contractor white walls and and contractor grade entry grade uh, carpet and the the cheapest furniture that you can find because it'll be there for a few years and then it'll go away. Yeah, <laughs> it's a disposable office. Yeah, and the and the the, the type of people that you have also dictates a little bit about the space and that's one of the difficulties I've always had when you talk to a real estate the agent and the build-out architect they end up talking to you about well what kinds of people are going to work in this space well I can describe my headquarters staff but the actual projects that might get housed there I mean what do you think are the different space profiles if you were going to be doing maybe application development as opposed to doing tier one sure. on our site help desk work, yeah, uh, big difference. You don't you don't need giant whiteboards if you're doing help desk. You need you need shift like space where people can come in and sit down, put on their headsets. And, and and do their work, uh, and then I'm, I'm I'm assuming if it's tier one, most tier one, you know, is at least two, maybe three shifts, so that you know you're you're churning space over again and again. And, you know, you you're gonna want locker space. You're going to want places where people can keep their things that are theirs, but not necessarily at the desk that they sit at. If you're doing a help desk, if you're doing app dev, you you need to have you know whiteboard paint put up on your walls. And uh, uh, places where people can, you know, draw giant diagrams and, and figure out all of the 
crazy things that I don't even begin to understand anymore. Yeah. Well, and you know, that used to be very much a construction challenge. It was, let me get a guy out here or a team out here with two-by-fours and drywall and go ahead and build out different spaces. There are furniture solutions for things like that, but I went to a giant showroom, kind of the furniture of today or tomorrow, whatever <laughs> you deem it. It was outside of Cleveland or Mason, Ohio, wherever their big distribution center was, and they, they invited us out because I had to buy a tremendous amount of furniture. And he described that problem for him that we want this space to be flexible for lots of different use cases. Said, Don't worry. This furniture, we can move these sliding partitions. We can have some of them be sound deadening. Some of them can be whiteboards. These desks can be different. You can swap in and out whether you want them to be locked drawers or unlocked drawers or you want it to be the, the little pull-out drawer that also acts as the guest chair and all of these kinds of things. You go, wow, that's amazing. That's cool. And that furniture for the size of office I was looking at opening was going to be slightly short of a million dollars. <laughs> wow. And then you're back into that that scenario where you're asking the landlord, would you be willing to pay for a million dollars worth of furniture? <laughs> and their answer will be, sure. Give me a 10-year lease, and I'm happy to. And all they want to do is have you sign up for so long that the financial numbers, if you looked at it, are obvious that it makes good sense for them to give you a million dollars because they're basically just loaning it to you because you're going to be paying it right back to them over the course of the next 12 to 14 years. Right. So one of the questions that I'm asked at times is how do you decide what kind of office space we're sitting in and how nice it is? And that really comes down to a couple of things. What's available in the area? Because, I mean, com people's commutes you can't change. I can always get a different coffee machine, yep. but if the office is in a terrible location for you, there's only so much that, that can be done about that. Um, what are the kinds of things that, in the places you've worked, that you felt were kind of the most important to the feeling of the office or, like, to your I experience in that office? Um, what floor it's on? How many windows you got? Uh, is it interior or exterior facing? Uh, light has a lot to do with it, honestly. Um, then what sort of amenities they're willing to put in? You talk about like coffee machines and things like that. Um, uh, that I mean, those are just easy for people like us to cope with. But from a real estate point of view, you know, you care about location. Mm -hmm. You care about parking. You care about... What else have I cared about? Location, real estate, parking. Yeah. And also, if there's some kind of food service in the building. Oh, yeah. That's usually nice. I mean, I think that's... When you can't go get something for lunch quickly, and it yeah. turns into a 30, 40, 50-minute just transit time, because, I mean, we're here in the D.C. metro area. You come up to a couple of different stoplights. It, it can easily eat up. 30 to 45 minutes and you haven't gotten any food and you haven't eaten it yet so yeah, it's just it, it, it takes a major hunk out of the middle of the day absolutely that's a great one can't believe i didn't think about that yeah well and the 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 interesting thing i think when you when you look at the the stock of real estate that is available if you decide that you're going in the 
standard traditional building uh, construct is it's very, very hard to find a building that has everything because a building that has all of that, good location, food in the building, fitness center in the building, uh, on a bus line, plenty of parking, all of that, is usually so in demand that they only want to give out entire floors. Because the best the best client for a traditional commercial real estate broker is, I'd like your entire building. I'd like to sign up for your entire building. I'd like to put my logo on top of it. We can discuss whether it's a 10 or 20 year lease, but here's all the build out I want, do everything I want. You sign up, you have one tenant to collect from, and you get one check a month forever, and that's it. Most people don't need that much space. Most people don't even need an entire floor. They might settle to take an entire floor if they had to, but a lot of times you're trying to find out, well, my ideal amount of space, can I get my ideal amount of space from a building? And a lot of times they don't want to subdivide it. So you end up in the... I don't want to call them less attractive. What I'd call them is they just don't have everything. You're not going to get all of those nice-to-haves in one of those buildings, and they say, oh, oh, and by the way, you only need 8,000 square feet. No problem. We'll go ahead and chop this floor in half. We'd be happy to give you half of it. And that's, that is, although, that does change somewhat geographically. In the D.C. area, most of your, the floor plate, the actual how much space can be on a floor is usually around 20,000 square feet. When you get out into the Midwest and places like that, a lot of their buildings are a little bit smaller, and a lot of them are already divided up. Hmm. Hardly anybody in Ohio needs 20,000 square feet. It is very, very common for you to find three and four and 5,000 square feet in blocks, and then it becomes a challenge to find as much contiguous space Space as what you were looking for. So that is a little bit of a market-driven thing. Nice. And the other thing that is is a consideration if you're ever going to look, look for a rectangular building. Yeah. Buildings look so cool from the outside. Oh, look at this. It's shaped like the letter S. It has this giant glass atrium in the shape of a triangle that sticks out of the middle of it. They've lopped this corner off so that it can all be windows. And what everyone wants is odd-shaped rooms. <laughs> yeah. You know what's hard to put in a room shaped like a trapezoid? A desk or a table. And so one of the things that if you're trying to keep your facilities spin down a little bit is trying to figure out the most efficient use of the space that you're going to lease. And if you're leasing a building that is shaped like a hexagon, the chances are you're taking 20 to 25% more space than you needed because there's at least a half a dozen rooms in your office where you say, well, they don't actually need all that space, but what the heck are you going to do with that little slice of space? Yep. I, I looked at one that it was an interesting idea for a building, but it had a, the entire inside of the building was a trapezoid-shaped atrium that went floor to roof, and it was glass-walled. What do you do with all those offices? Because everybody wow. in those offices can see everybody else in all those offices, so it's not really a private office. Nope. It's... Maybe a conference room, 
but you can't put chairs against it because it keeps having these angled walls that turn away from you. Because it's a trapezoid. Because it's a trapezoid. That's amazing. Um, yeah, so, so those are some things that impact the decision, and then really it does get down to the different finishes and where the most return is, and if you can find a space that's already mostly built out. Now, real estate agents won't tell you this. They'll say, oh, don't worry. That landlord will rip this stuff out. It's no big deal. And landlords will all tell you, don't worry. We'll do whatever it is that you want, but you're going to end up paying for it. Nothing's free. Nothing's free. And so if you can find a space that there's any way that you can visualize, you know what? I could live with all of these walls. I would just need these couple of things changed. That's all money you don't have to pay for. Every time they rip a wall down and carry new drywall in and frame something up and put something new in, that's something that's that you just ended up paying for. Absolutely. That's just essentially what happened. Um, the, the the other you know facilities consideration, I think, is how often are people that are on programs really going to use your space? If you, yep. if you build out, oh, we're going to have a design center or an innovation center, are they going to come out? Yep. Um, and we've worked places in the past that had all of those kinds of things uh, that were showcases for technology and test labs. Have you seen much ability to use those things from a program standpoint? No, they were all sales tools. Yeah. The only people that ever really used them were business development bringing out customers. That's it. Yeah. So I, that's kind of what I've seen as well. You yeah. know, when, when I've had people on site and kind of the things that we do here is when when somebody says we'd like to have a development environment to do some things that need to be piloted and prototyped before we could add them to the baseline of the environment, you go out and you spin up an, uh, an instance for them in Amazon or Azure, whichever is the best use the cloud That's linkage to their for. environment, yep. and allow them to do their prototyping there because they don't want to come out here. No. And you know. If people commute to your headquarters every day, they at least understand that commute. If you have a project in D.C., we're very close to D.C. We're, well, I don't know, 13 miles from the city. But the people that commute to those programs are from all over the place. Yeah. They, have, they are all probably 15 to 25 miles from there. But a lot from of them... all other directions. All other directions. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's, that's something that has always been interesting to me because almost everybody that you see has some sort of a development lab, something that I've always felt is is generally not that useful to people on projects. Yeah. Um, having some hoteling space that they can come in and sit down at is Hoteling is nice. space is great. Necessary, I think. But, yeah. And, and what if you're doing prototyping and something that can be done off-site, um, you know, let them do it off-site if they want. I mean, or uh, if you can do, if you need co-location for the design work on it, okay, you can do that on customer site, or you could do, you know, a day out at, at sort of a, a facilitation space. But, you know, coders can code just about anywhere. You know, give them their headphones and let them go. Right, and that, that is a good point. And, and again, that ties back, honestly, to a, a lot of the co-working options is that if, if what you need is a couple of days for people to get together, they will all rent you a room. Yeah. You can get a giant conference room with plenty of Wi-Fi and free coffee and everything else and have them all work yeah. however they want and whatever hours they want. 
that that usually also I think does does work pretty well. Yep. You know, the the other thing I think we we might want to chat about uh, during this episode is that linkage between the sales. Here's how we would do innovation, and here's how we would do prototype development. It does feed into the proposal process pretty sure. pretty significantly. Um, when did you start getting involved in proposals in this industry? Gosh, um, I, I started with it. Uh, I, I helped do some commercial stuff, very little bit at, at the startup, but at, with government stuff, uh, it was when I was uh, essentially uh, working with a, a government uh, project lead who said, Kevin, I would love to have you come work over over here help me put together a reason to do it right and so when he was going to a different part of the agency he wanted to bring some folks along with him and so uh started working you know very small pieces uh of that for for writing and a little bit before that i got to do some color team reviews so started with reviews as so gosh what uh Call me. Uh, uh, I was a senior programmer, but a, a mid project manager uh, when I first started really working with it. It, it it's the, it's it's something that so many people that I I talk to can't stand the proposal process, and I think a lot of that is probably either the way it's handled or the hours on which it's handled the expectations that are levied on the participants yeah so what was was most of yours was it go ahead and work all day and then in the evening absolutely it was you you have your day job awesome keep doing that that's wonderful now 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 we we've got this section we want your help on we're doing a review at 8 a.m thank you yeah yeah, and that, that I think, the, the scaling from we're going to have everybody work themselves just absolutely bleary-eyed on this yep. to it's a repeatable process and it's something that we are going to all consult on and make sure we get the right answer written down. That's a, a, a maturity and a scaling. But honestly, I see a lot of places where proposals are very, very painful at any size. Yeah, where it's, uh, you know, an evening and weekends all the time. I mean, I've seen small, medium, and large companies all operate that way. And, you know, sometimes, you know, a last-minute Q&A comes in and things need to shift because they've not moved the deadline. And, you know, I mean, the proposal manager's job is to be a galley drummer and make sure everyone's rowing. Yeah. Uh, But... You know, I mean, it does. It does not have to be as painful as it is a lot of places. Yeah, I, I feel like the 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 big stack up of oh my god, we all have to be here all night is very very few and far between. That okay, here's an amendment. We changed something. It's substantial. It's going to take a lot of work, but it's still due in two days. Right. It's very rare, and I haven't had anything like that happen in, in a long time. Honestly, yeah, from a. Yeah, it's pretty rare to have a prop go from 100 pages to 50 pages back to 100 yeah. pages. Yeah, I think that brings back flashbacks. Um, <laughs> that's that's a side story that is probably for a different podcast that is probably not... Over beer. Yeah, um, the, the rewriting of um, from 
300 pages to 100 to 50 to 100 back to 300 back to 100 or maybe three volumes that were all 100 and um we just won't go there. It's it's just it's just better that we don't. If anybody's listening to this that actually knows which one that was, I'm sure everybody's laughing. So um, I still feel the same way about that one that I ever did. So that helps. Yeah, but anyway, it's very rare. Is the, is the important yeah, part? It, of it is rare. And I think honestly, the the scaling of a proposal process is more about the maturity of it than adding people to it. Because usually, because it's about delivering a project, and that's kind of what we do as a company. Yeah. You honestly almost have more resources than you need at any given time to write one or more proposals because, say, okay, well, you guys all know how to do this. You know, you folks, you do this, you do that. It becomes, I think, about two things, about coming up and sticking to a schedule that, that doesn't wear everybody else out, but then also having your process honed so that from comprehensively throughout the process, you actually know what you want to propose, and what yep. you want to propose is, is it can be executed. Yep. Um, also, what what you want to propose? I mean, what what is the special sauce that is how you develop something? What you know? I mean, do you have a particular way that you like to develop software? You know, can you get that sort of defined and then see how it fits around? A particular proposal. Do you have a particular way that you found that works really well for O&M, for server maintenance, for database administration? And, and figuring that out as a company, you know, what makes you you? How do you do these things? Goes a long way. I mean, you don't want to boilerplate everything. I mean, I'm sure everyone that's been around has worked someplace that boilerplates everything, and that doesn't win a lot either. But knowing how you approach particular problems I mean the government has similar problems all over the place and so mm -hmm. you know knowing how you approach different things gives you a starting point for ways to be able to approach each of those proposals yeah technology challenges every agency is unique but the challenges they face from a technology standpoint you know when when Windows goes from one version to the next it will be unique in each agency but that's a thing that has to be done when you're going from physical servers to cloud that's that's a thing that has to be done there is a lot of commonality um, the the discipline that I think is required that is hard to infuse into the process consistently is let's make sure we sit down and really start thinking about the right way to solve this problem and then yep. write it that way and then when you're reviewing, you're saying, what we decided we were going to do, does this really say and be clear in the way that we're going to do it? Absolutely. Uh, it drives me absolutely up a wall when I'm given a pink or red team review copy, and they say, here's the SOW, Here, here's our, our, our response, give me comments, and if I haven't been in the solutioning session, I can tell you, do you answer, do you answer the mail? I can't tell you if you're telling the story that you want to tell. Right. And so coming up with with what with what your solution is, what what is going to be the differentiator, what what are your win themes? I mean, are you driving them home? You have to have that up front and you can't just you can't wing that. Yeah, and I also think that being disciplined to make sure that 
what you propose is your opinion of the right answer. It doesn't necessarily mean that it is, but it, based on our experience, we think this is the right way to accomplish your, your requirements. And then we know that we can actually deliver it that way. Yep. Um, that's one of the reasons, I mean, we do this here, but but I, I, I prefer to work with organizations where their proposal shot and the proposal organization is integrated in some way with the service delivery team. You yeah. know, we, we do that. Um, we've even gone to the ISO 44000 standard is collaborative business relationship management, which we've implemented because it forces rigor and audits around making sure that those two sides of the process are, are linked. But it improves that likelihood that what you said you were going to propose, that when you show up to deliver it, that when you've gone from being the technical expert to being the delivery technical expert, that that actually is what you're supposed to deliver. Yeah, and that the PM on the ground that shows up at the kickoff, you know, isn't surprised about what they're supposed to be doing. It's, uh, yeah, it is so important. Uh, as as someone who's on the execution side, I I love having input into what's being sold because you know uh, we're we're the ones that that are on the hook for it. It doesn't matter if we agreed with it beforehand or not. As soon as we get that award, it's ours to deliver and we'll ours to figure out how to. So much better when when we're all a part of it. You know, from from the get go, it's it's yeah. It's the only it's the only way to to to, to really create a really cohesive uh, solution too. I think. It, so so, I would say that the scaling there is really not so much about adding people to it. It's about scaling the maturity of the process to make sure that you're you're only bidding things that you think you know how to do. Yep. That you are proposing them in ways that you think you would actually do the work. Yep. And then um, you're handing that off to operations, which we will certainly talk about, you yep. know, later. Um, I think we probably have a couple of minutes if we wanted to touch on. Have there been times where you've supported programs, and I know you've you've generally been the prime, I think more so than the sub, but that you've yep. supported programs where all of a sudden you showed up to do delivery and it seemed like the proposal that was exec- that was written to, to, to win that work ha- had basically no connection with what it seemed like you, you showed up to, to support. Sure. I mean, it's a, I mean, I mean even as, even as a prime, it's, we, we've shown up at, at places where, uh, where they said, we love what you wrote. It's great. That's awesome. You, you said exactly what was written down for. That's not what we're doing. We're going to do this over here, and right. you're going to help us. And you sit there, you pick your job off the floor, and you say, great. Because um, yeah, I guess that's the other side of the coin. We've certainly seen where you walk in, and, and your, your core, your COTAR says, we're not really sure who wrote these requirements. We've been <laughs> on the job for about a year, and we think this procurement package was submitted two to three you know, months before that. And, yep. Um, this isn't really what we do anymore. So yeah, that certainly does happen. Yeah. But from a delivery side, have you seen the somebody promise oh, something? Oh, promise something different? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, usually over-promising uh, what, what can be done in a particular period of time. So I, I, haven't, I haven't been uh, a party too much to people 
promising the impossible, like literally impossible, just so yeah, you know, in the first two months we'll be able to get you X and then have to sit down and explain we can be working on that in the first two months we have a month transition where we're learning about what you do we then are picking things up and executing and, and working out the kinks there and you really want us doing that first right yeah, yeah I, I've been a subcontractor a few times on, on some of these big programs where you showed up and it it made it feel like the people that wrote the proposal had no idea about that work. And um, we had a Homeland Security audiovisual infrastructure program uh, many years ago that just the clearances that were bid to access the information in different areas didn't allow those people to actually access the information they needed. Oh, you had some no. people that were bid with TS clearances that didn't that didn't need them, and then you had some people that were uncleared that were bid that they couldn't go into the room where they were supposed to do their work because it was open storage and they couldn't go in. Oh, wow. And the fundamental understanding of who works from where and how many people... It was. It just is so painful, and it does a real disservice to the people on the ground trying to do the work, and the customer who finds out that there really was no thought to a lot of the things. That somebody wrote an answer that sounded good, but it wasn't really thought out or practical. Right. Um, so I have seen that happen, and it's about as painful. I mean, it makes you want to rip your hair out. There, the the one program that we were supposed to have. Um, we were supposed to staff a 47-person team on that big program wow. to do a lot of their infrastructure work. And by the time we were hiring people, having them show up, and then having them come call us back and say, I'm down here to do Linux, they don't use Linux. <laughs> and you'd just pause and everybody would stare at each other and we'd say, okay, we're, we're going to get you on the company's mobility board. Come back here and... While you're down there, can you ask anybody what kinds of te- like, like what what do they need? What do they need? And so I kid you not, one of the people that we had wow. bid as a um, on the on the database side ended up becoming kind of our our deputy PM to try to staff the program because he at least had been badged, even though after he got badged and showed up, he found out that, that he, he couldn't actually technically stack. support their tech stack. Wow. But at least he had access to the people and could right. could help us try to triangulate what we needed. And we'd be on staffing calls, and sometimes the Prime wouldn't even be on. And that program, we never ended up with more than 14 or 15 people on that program, and we eventually made the conscious decision that these aren't growing pains. This was fundamentally flawed. We, we can't support this and in good faith tell people that they might want this job and send them down there. It's time to move them to other programs. Yeah, and The juice is not worth the squeeze. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Um, but so that's the proposal side of, of the business, and uh, I think for uh, you know for the next episodes, um, talking about how you take your your delivery side, contracts and subcontracts and operations, and make sure that they can handle the requirements of the business and continue to pay the right level of attention and be ready to handle new projects when they come in. Yeah, um, that would probably be those would be good topics uh, for there. And so I'd say. Uh, 
for both of us, thanks for listening to the show. Yeah, and good night, kids. <laughs> the views and opinions expressed in this episode are those of the hosts and do not necessarily reflect Highlight Technologies and or any agency of the U.S. government.